match with Andrew Ellis. There it is, 80 minutes is out. All they're going to do is kick it out. Do they know it? Do they know it, though? Ellis is going to do it. And they're offside. Just going to kick it out. And the All Blacks are the world champions for the second time. That was New Zealand winning the Rugby World Cup in 2011. That team, the All Blacks, is often picked out when business leaders are looking at what they can learn from elite sports. But have we been looking at the wrong things? I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past. In this episode, we look at what businesses can really learn from sport. To do that, we speak to Catherine Baker, the author of a new book called Staying the Distance, the lessons from sport that business leaders have been missing. Catherine Baker used to be a corporate lawyer with Linklaters and now runs a consultancy firm called Sport and Beyond, which coaches business leaders using insight and research from elite sport. We're very used to drawing lessons from sport across the business. Many of them, as you'll be aware, focus on winning and they focus on high performance in the moment. I felt we were missing a trick because day in, day out, sport really does show us not just how to perform, improve and achieve, but how to do so over the long term in a way that's sustainable and that ensures that we can deliver results consistently when it matters. And I just felt that although there are a huge number of brilliant books sport across to leadership and business, and you'll be able to see I've got quite a few of them in the bookshelf behind me, and I've certainly read all of them. I felt we were missing a trick and perhaps we hadn't been shining the spotlight on some of these really, really good lessons around actually sustainable long term performance. So that was the first gap. The second gap, again, lots of brilliant books from sport to business, the majority of them written by men and the majority of them featuring male athletes, male coaches, male teams. I felt there were some amazing stories out there from female athletes, female coaches that I really wanted to bring out into the light. Also fairly unusual as a female author to write a book in this space. And I just felt it would be good to do my my bit, however small that was, to sort of slightly redress that balance and particularly to be able to feature so many amazing female athletes, coaches and teams. So that was the gap. The second bit then was around the right time. Leadership can be hard and it can certainly be relentless. And the pandemic was wreaking havoc on the well-being of so many senior leaders Not only was I reading that pretty much everything I picked up, I was also seeing it at the coalface with the leaders that I was coaching through the pandemic. And again, there was that gap, I think, around the yes, there's a big focus in so many leadership books around high performance and winning. And particularly when it comes to lessons from sport, you know, sport is about winning. And so 
the end result lessons are almost the ones picked up rather than the ones that are the process that goes to making sure that you can sustain and win over the long term consistently. So I felt there was a gap in terms of a book highlighting the lessons from sport around that sustainable um, performance and that it really was the right time now because of the impact the pandemic was having on so many people and of course it wasn't just boxed into the pandemic it's still there we're still suffering the after effects so that led me to think the right time the, the final catalyst was I live up just outside York and I was on a train down to London it was just after the first lockdown had ended and I promise that's the case I was allowed to be traveling down to London for work and I was as you often are on a train carriage, trying to do my, my work, but there were um, a couple of people who were having a conversation and I couldn't stop myself listening. It was two women, one slightly younger, one slightly older. And I cannot tell you how on point it was with what I was thinking and therefore why it was really the final catalyst. The younger one was saying something along the lines of, you know, this is just relentless. I'm exhausted. My team are exhausted. We just can't continue at this pace. The pandemic has meant that we're dealing with uncertainty all the time. Our boundaries are disappearing in terms of that that sort of gap between work and home life. I feel like I'm having to be on all the time. And the slightly older lady replied along the lines of, it's not sustainable. And we all have to remember that, you know, working life is a marathon, not a sprint. And that conversation, I remember getting off the train and thinking, right, I'm going to do this. It was never my plan to write a book. Um, it had probably been there subconsciously for a while, but it's not like I'd sort of sat there, you know, for years and years and thought I must get a book out there. But that really was the the final catalyst to make me think, I, I want to do this. Why do you think there has been this gap in terms of looking at the sustainability of performance and focusing on the lessons from high performance? Because when you think about it, high performance in sport it is about gearing up for a particular moment and peaking at, say, one event in the Olympics. Whereas as a business, it's very rare that there's one singular moment that you need to peak for. It is much more about sustained performance. So why was there this this gap? Why have we been looking at the wrong lessons from sport? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the glamour. So there's the glamour, isn't there, in highlighting the winning, the end result and looking at that and thinking, how can we transplant that across into business? Because people want to associate themselves, don't they, with those amazing moments and amazing success. Is there possibly a bit around the stories of winning are really interesting. Sometimes the stories of what you have to do to get there are possibly less interesting and I go into this a bit in the book. One of the chapters is called How to Bring the Required Discipline to the Table. And I refer to a piece of research called The Mundanity of Excellence, which is such a good title. The work that goes into those moments that we all see on telly or that we all read about is long, sustained, extensive, relentless but also well-balanced to make sure that you can perform at the right time. And may maybe historically that hasn't been as interesting or people haven't felt sort of quite so needful of, you know, to, to actually look at that. But I think the pandemic, again, has really brought to life this issue around the relentlessness of the pace at which we've all been working, the fact that's not sustainable, and therefore to unpick and do a bit of a deep dive into what does go into these amazing moments that we all see particularly the athletes that manage to repeat that, you know, consistently. So it's not just the one-off moments. I think that's probably just been sort of well-timed. In the book, it feels to me like you debunk a lot of myths about leadership through examples in sport. And you've touched on, on one there, I guess, that actually sort of being single-minded, relentless, 
targeting your goals narrowly isn't actually a healthy approach in the long term and ultimately means that your excellence will be diluted. Is is that a fair summary? Uh, Absolutely. And I think there's a couple of bits that I'll pull out from there. Um, The book starts with reference to a really interesting piece of research that was done in the Rio Olympic cycle. So between 2012 and 2016, um, the Great British Medalist Study, and they brought together 32 athletes and they paired them together. So we had 16 pairs of athletes. Within each pair, there was what they called an elite athlete and a super elite athlete. So the super elite athlete were your winning gold medals at the Olympics. Your elite were making the team, making the worlds, et cetera, but perhaps not quite getting to that final stage. And they looked at the commonalities between each person in each pair and some of the distinctions. One of the really interesting distinctions was whether the athletes were focused on outcomes or whether they were focused on mastery. And by mastery, that desire to consistently be better than you were the day before at what you do. So so less focus on the outcome itself, but actually more on the process and mastering. And I think that's definitely one of the things that's been um, good to debunk because people think sport is all about winning, but actually what you see from a lot of sustained success in sport is that if you focus on the process, the outcome will take care of itself. That can help with the perspective, the issue you're talking about there, because you're focusing on what's in front of you and consistent improvement rather than I must get here, I must get there, I must win that. The other thing I draw out from that I had the privilege of sharing a story from a cricketer called Claire Taylor, um, the only female cricketer to be Wisden Player of the Year, actually, I forget the year, but a really fascinating lady. Her story supports a lot of the anecdotal evidence, but there is actually some now some proper research backing this up, which is that if you focus on something outside of your sport and gain perspective accordingly, it can actually help you improve on the pitch, on the court, etc. So Claire, as I said, was a cricketer, came through the ranks doing really well. She'd been a Cambridge graduate she was also a very good violinist so a very sort of multi-talented lady she found that the constant and single-minded focus on cricket actually wasn't helping her performance took a decision to pick up a part-time job as a consultant and actually that was the decision and that was the stage at which her career really really took off and and her her, um, performances really took off there is now some wonderful research backing this up from the NRL looking at the importance of professional athletes having something else to focus on outside of the sport and I think that translates well into the business world doesn't it that we can all get very sucked into our jobs particularly when you're in senior leadership and the importance of making sure that you've got other things in life I always love reading in the business sections at the weekend you know when you get a profile on a particular business leader I love reading you know how they spend their weekends because to me that's really important How do you get a business leader to understand and actually do that? Because I guess one key difference between business and sport is whereas sport is scheduled and you have matches and events, for a business leader, often they will think it's about doing things as as quickly as they possibly can. So how do you get them to appreciate that they need to take time out of their schedule to find other interests? I'm going to pick up on two things there. Even in business, you will generally find that there are phases through a year where actually 
there is more pressure, perhaps a bit more of a focus, more things going on than others. So whether you're a listed company and you've got your quarterly reporting, whether you're VC backed and you've got those kind of or private equity and you've got those kind of commitments, whether you're a school leader and you've got busy term times and then holidays, whether you're a corporate lawyer and you've got times when you're busy on transactions and times when it's a bit quieter. So I think even in corporate and business life, it can help to see you know, the period ahead of you, not just as full on, full on, but actually how can we periodize? How can I look at my year coming up and think these are the times when I need to be really on it, when it's going to be really busy. And these are the times when it's going to be a bit quieter. One tip I give to senior leaders I work with is actually to color code their diary and the weeks where they know it's going to be really busy and they've got to be really on their game, color code them in, say, red and then where you've got some weeks leading up to that, where it's important to make sure that you are looking after yourself and, you know, refreshing yourself to an extent, perhaps colour those in blue. So there's different tools and techniques, but I think that can help. The other thing is the sort of misnomer that um, you've got performance at one end of a spectrum and well-being at the other. And I think sport has really realized now that it's not like you've got one or the other, but well-being really underpins performance. One of the things that is the opposite of music to my ears, whatever the, the right expression is, is when I have senior leaders saying, Catherine, I'm so busy that I haven't got time to go for a walk, have a proper lunch break, go to the gym, do my morning run, whatever. And I always say, you've got to flip that. I'm so busy that I must make time to have my walk, have lunch, go to the gym, whatever. Where we have to be performing at a high level, our well-being, physical and mental, is absolutely critical if we want to sustain that performance. And I think it's a message which sport, elite sport, has learnt and I hope is getting across more and more to business. You've touched on it there and you also touched on it in the book, but it's not seen as a particularly glamorous thing, but you pick out time management in the book as something that elite athletes really focus on and are good at? Yeah, um, not just elite athletes, but elite coaches, actually. And I'll share a story shortly from um, Mel Marshall, who I feature quite a lot in the book, and we, we did an event together yesterday. But yeah, I think, again, so a bit of context. I'm certainly not suggesting that everything in sport is brilliant and that there are loads of amazing lessons, you know, that that every everything we see in sport should be taken across to business as a lesson. There are some things in sport where actually, do you know what? We're not that great. And perhaps we could learn a lot from business. And I think one of the challenges often when you're talking about athletes and things like time management is it's all very well, but you know, all they've got to do is train and compete. Their job is actually really straightforward. But if you think about, let's take an athlete like Jessica Ennis-Hill, who I feature in that chapter, Think about that run up to London 2012 Olympics, where she really was the, the, the face of the Olympics. Think about how many approaches she would have had and potential commitments of her time in terms of sponsorship, interviews, broadcasting, whatever. So actually, the really successful athletes who have long term success have a huge number of calls on their time. What is it that they learn to do really well? They learn to prioritize. They learn to focus. Jess was renowned for turning up for training, having cleared everything else from her mind, absolutely focused on training, training finishes, going on to the next bit, going on to the next thing. So focusing, bringing attention and compartmentalizing. Athletes are also very good at knowing what their role is. I think it's one of the things that can go wrong in business in terms of this time management where we're not absolutely clear on what our role is and what that looks like running an event last night, we asked the audience, how many of you can describe your role in one or two sentences? Very few of the members were able to do so. 
If you can't do that, it's very hard to know what you should be focusing on and how you should be prioritizing your time. Athletes are also good at staying in their lane in the sense that let's take Jessica Ennis-Hill again. She would have had a team of physio, nutritionist, you know, coach, all sorts of people around her. She's not going to try and do the physio's role. She's not going to try and do the nutritionist role. You know, she'll stay in her lane and know what her role is. And again, I think one of the tendencies in business, especially in senior leadership, is that perhaps we might bleed some of our time into things that actually other people should be doing or is part of their role. Not surprising, because often when we get to that level, we're very capable. You know, we can pretty much do most things and we care a lot about our organisation. But that staying in our lane is really important. Another topic that Catherine Baker analyses in her book is perfectionism and how it can be used as a positive force if harnessed correctly, but also how it can become ruinous for an athlete or business leader if it is allowed to overwhelm them. The Lionesses last summer had a great mantra throughout, which is that nobody wins afraid of losing. And I thought that was really powerful. So one of the areas I pick up on in terms of how to leave behind fear is this issue of perfectionism. And again, in elite athletes, there is possibly a higher prevalence of people with perfectionistic tendencies than outside of elite sport. The research shows that perfectionist tendencies can help or they can hinder. And it depends on in which category they fall. We have one category, which is perfectionistic strivings, and one which is perfectionistic concerns. So taking that latter one, the perfectionistic concerns being where, to put it in a work context, I'm going to reread an email so many times before I send it out because I'm so worried about having made a mistake. I've been asked to send a document through to my boss by the end of the day, but I just can't because I haven't checked it and dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And I'm so worried about it not being absolutely perfect. So where those perfectionistic concerns become debilitating, unhelpful, where we are so worried about getting things wrong, that's the space ideally that you don't want to be in. What's the space you would like to be in? What is termed perfectionistic strivings, where you're taking those tendencies around wanting to do well, being really conscientious, really caring about the outcome and the output, but actually aligning them behind an understanding that perfectionism is unattainable. There's no point aiming for that. No one, you know, it's just not possible. Let's strive instead for excellence. Let's strive to do as good a job as I possibly can do in the circumstances in which I am at the moment. So aligning those tendencies behind that can or research will show can have a really positive impact in our performance without the debilitating side effects of those perfectionistic concerns. Could you also just touch on a, a similar point you make in the book about the difference between the threat and challenge mindset? You, you give the example in the book of, of Chris Hoy, who before he became the multi gold winning medalist that we all know, had a failure in Stuttgart where he was. I think fair to say overwhelmed by the speed of the other riders and completely abandoned the strategy that they'd thought through beforehand. And he realized at that point he needed to seek some help and you expand on this in the book and it's an absolutely sort of fascinating area. So if you're a business leader, sort of how do you change your mindset on that issue? Um, the misconception around this story, which is a well-known story is that Chris was failing 
and therefore he sort of reached out for help. Actually, he wasn't. He'd already won, I think, a silver at Sydney and he was a world champion. So he was already a successful athlete. But he had this particular experience in Stuttgart that made him realise that he was missing something. He didn't have all the tools in his toolbox yet because actually he'd been on the start line. He was the last to go in this one kilometre time trial. Everyone else had gone first and had gone much quicker than he'd expected. And so he basically let his emotions take over. He had what's called the amygdala hijack where rather than sticking to his carefully thought through plan, you know, emotions took over and he raced in a way which hadn't planned and which unfortunately led to him coming forth. He reached out for help. So he owned that and decided to reach out for help. And I think it's important to understand, as I said, he had already had success. He just wanted to have more and more sustained success. And so he, he realized to go and get help. This aspect then about how to do it and the threat versus challenge mindset is such a fascinating area because we all in our daily working lives and particularly the more senior we get face uh, high pressured situations don't we either one off or over a prolonged period of time now we can approach them in what's called a threat mindset where we view them with anxiety we can get a bit tense you know we can sort of almost zone in on it too much and you become too narrow and too focused That can lead to the sort of, you know, fight, flight, freeze response and really meaning that we're not operating at our best. Where we can convert that into the challenge mindset, where actually we are calm, we are relaxed, we are open, we are excited, can actually really make a real difference in terms of our performance. And I think there's a couple of bits I'll pick out on that, if that's okay. One on research and one on a tip. Some very interesting research done out of Harvard Business School looking at exactly this, our kind of performance anxiety or arousal and the impact that has on our performance. So they identified three activities which they thought would probably cause what they call pre-performance arousal, karaoke singing, public speaking and doing maths problems in front of other people. That last one for me certainly would be a bit of a nightmare. Lawyers are never good with numbers. Um, And they had different groups and I won't go into all all the detail, but essentially, you know, you have a group where they um, don't really say anything to them before they have to do these activities. But they had another group where they said, tell yourself over and over again, I am excited. I am excited. I am excited. And that group massively outperformed the the, the groups that weren't given that as a tip and that sort of self-talk. So it is possible to move ourselves from a threat into a challenge mindset and the language that we use can really help with that not just the self-talk that I've referenced there but that is so important it always amazes me that it's not talked about more in the world of business because our self-talk is so critical but also the language we use to others so how many times do you perhaps say to a partner or a friend or someone at work oh I'm not looking forward to this week we've got so much on or I've got a really difficult conversation coming up at work. I really don't want to have that. That language is probably going to keep you in a threat mindset. Whereas if you change your language to, gosh, I've got a really interesting week coming up. I'm going to be stretched. There's going to be some challenges, but I'm looking forward to seeing how I'm going to do and I'm going to get support, help, etc. So that language to move us from threat to challenge mindset is really critical. Catherine Baker's book is split into two parts. The first part looks at how a business leader can sustain their own performance over the long term. But the second half looks at how a business leader can sustain the performance of their team too. It uses various examples from the world of sport to debunk some myths about leadership. This includes the fact that the passionate team talk is not as important as you may think. 
and that getting to know your players personally as well as professionally can be important. It also looks at Norwegian cross-country skiers and how their self-coaching turned out to be as valuable as the coaching of their managers. As leaders, the way that we communicate has a disproportionate impact. You know, every time you're communicating with someone, you're either going to be adding to their performance or taking away. And I think both within business and probably because of what people believe is the case in sport, there is a, a, a an expectation or, or a belief that those leaders who are able to give those big inspirational talks, you know, to stand up in the, the, the town hall meeting or whatever and really articulate themselves brilliantly and leave everyone sort of fist pumping are the ones that really drive performance. What sport shows us actually is that certainly isn't always the case. There's a brilliant book by a Wall Street journalist called Sam Walker, which I refer to in the book called Captain Class. And he highlights just this issue. He goes through a process of identifying the top 16 teams in the world. I won't go into detail of how he does that, but he comes up with the top 16 sports teams in the world across the last century looks at then the features that set them apart. He ends up being really annoyed because it seems to come down to the identity of the captain and that annoys him because he thinks it shouldn't be just down to one person, but that's what the the data is showing him. So then he looks at, well, okay, what is it about these individuals that you know means that they are their teams perform so well and there is this one chapter absolutely about how they communicate and actually it's not the standing up in the changing room and really inspiring everyone it's the ability to have short impactful meaningful communications and he tells a brilliant story of Tim Duncan captain of the San Antonio Spurs when a player gets benched and he goes over to him and puts his hand on his shoulders and looks at him and says, are you OK? And literally holds this gaze for three seconds before he moves away. And there's some brilliant business research that backs that up as well. So absolutely, I think that's one myth around the way that we communicate. Steve Kerr, coach of Golden State Warriors, one of the most well-renowned coaches across the world, He talks a lot about getting to know his players as individuals, building those human connections. And I think, again, it's something which the pandemic has really demonstrated to us. Some interesting research that McKinsey did around the great resignation. Why were people leaving? Employers thought it was around transactional issues like pay. And actually what their data showed was it was more around relational issues. So am I being valued? Are they, you know, progressing me as an individual, etc.? Do I feel like I belong? So the examples within sport where they really look at the person before the player Um, I share a really good example around that belonging with London Pulse netball team as well, which you'll recall from the book and really building a feeling of identity and a feeling of belonging and those human connections. The issue around sort of ownership and empowerment, you picked up on Norwegian skiers and and Graham Henry is an interesting one. I finished the book with this chapter. and, And one of the reasons I do is because I think it's probably one of the most interesting conundrums in terms of Can we really transplant what we see in sport across to business? And this is the ownership conundrum. I start with the story of Graham Henry, who at the time was coach to the All Blacks, the most successful team of all time. And he was finishing training one day and um, his captain at the time, Tana Amagu, said, can we have a coffee? And Graham Henry thought to himself, that's odd because he's never asked for that before. And uh, and he says, OK, so they sit down for coffee and um, Tana says, you know, those team talks that you give to us before we go out to play our matches. Why do you give them? So Graham Henry thought about it and he said, well, kind of to inspire you and motivate you. I've often got some last minute bits that I want to share with you and, you know, sort of pointers. 
And Tana goes, are they for you or are they for us? And Graham Henry thought about it and he thought, do you know what? He's right. It's, it's, it's about me. It's about me feeling good. It's not for them, not least because the whole process during the week before a game is that we try to move authority and ownership away from us as coaches onto the players. And there I am at the last minute, snatching it back by doing this team talk. He vowed then never to give another team talk. And he never did, moving on to other coaching roles as well. Coaches talk a lot about, and Graham Henry's one of them, making themselves redundant. My question was, is this applicable and transferable across to the world of business? Is it right that senior leaders, CEOs should be looking to make themselves redundant? How important is communication? Because you touched on it there, and although I said about sort of team talks and speaking passionately maybe isn't as important as people think, you also make the point very clearly in the book that communication and words really do matter. It's just not in the way we necessarily thought they did. Yeah, um, there's a great story that's sort of done the rounds around the world of sport of a new coach um, for the England men's cricket team at the ECB standing up in front of a room full of people and saying, um, I'm going to introduce you to the, to the, the best performance enhancing drug there is few you know drop jaws not just from the players but from the rest of the coaching staff thinking we've definitely got the wrong person here if they're talking about bringing in a performance enhancing drug and this individual went on to say it's the power of language that's the the, the drug that I'm talking about it's it's free um, we can all learn to use it but language is so important so the way that we communicate I think is absolutely critical To give you a very basic example, and it's one that I experienced back in the day through my children who have all um, had the sort of fortune of playing lots of sport. One of my sons was going out to bat in a cricket game and the coach said something along the lines of, don't lose your wicket early. And I thought to myself at the time, not sure that's a really positive statement to be made because the thing that's probably going to be staying in his mind is losing my wicket early. I then did some research, talked to people, read again a very good book on that area, which made me realise absolutely that that was probably not the best way to phrase it. And turning it round to stand tall, concentrate, be confident. So positive messages were probably going to have much more impact. I think, again, it's the same in the workplace. As senior leaders, people working in business, we are communicating all the time. The more senior we are, the more disproportionate an impact our words have choosing them carefully, choosing them in a way which enhances performance rather than taking away from it, which supports and challenges rather than undermining, is, I think, absolutely critical. Well, when a business leader is thinking about strategy and thinking about short-term and long-term goals, what does sports say about the importance of setting goals and targets that are realistic, but also those that perhaps seem beyond where we might be capable right now? Yeah, um, mixed is probably the simplest answer. So there are some really good examples of people who set themselves what seem like these, uh, you know, wild goals and have that as a focus throughout their career. So Dan Carter is a great example, an all-black rugby player who, I can't remember the exact details, but I think wrote on a piece of paper and put it on the back of his wardrobe to say, I'm going to be the greatest all-black ever. So there are examples of people who who set out these, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals and they really work for them. There is a school of thought, however, that they can be a bit dangerous because if they are unattainable, you're going to feel disappointed if you don't get there. And actually, a better approach is to focus on the process, 
focus on short-term goals you're trying to achieve and that way you're going to get that consistent perhaps more sustainable improvement Emma Raducanu actually is a really good example. I appreciate she's had lots of challenges in the last couple of years, but two years ago when she had that amazing run from qualifying through to winning the US Open, she and her coach, Andrew Richardson, set process goals the whole way. They didn't set a goal of, I want to win the US Open. They set process goals through, I think it was the 14 matches she played in that run. And that for her was successful in terms of, you know, really achieving that. So, the expression often used in sport is focus on the process and the outcome will take care of itself. So I think there is a space probably for these aspirations, but you could have set them too low and therefore they're too easily achievable or too high and you could be disappointed you don't. The, 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 the short term goals actually become very important stepping stones. You also give this great example in the book of the four minute mile and Roger Bannister and how once a target on milestone is hit, it kind of opens people's mind to the fact that they can achieve it. Yeah, belief. I mean, it is such an important one. So how how to foster belief in the right way that actually really does drive again sustained performance. I think it's a brilliant area in, in sport. And that is a, um, a well-known example where when Roger Bannister achieved the four minute mile, there was an expectation that what he'd achieved was exceptional and no one else would be able to, you know, to do it. Only a few days later, an Australian runner managed to do it. And I think within the next year, there'd been a, a good handful of, of runners who, who had achieved that. Where we set our belief and our expectations, I think, is very important. That aspect of I can do it, I can achieve is 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 very useful. Adam Peaty, again, is a good example there with his, first of all, Project 57 for his breaststroke race and then Project 56. So a belief that you can do that. Married, however, with an understanding of where you are currently and an ability to look that in the face. I think that's something probably where sport has an advantage because you are constantly competing and constantly seeing how you're doing. You do easily get that very relevant, very direct, very in the moment feedback in terms of where you are. So you can marry that belief and aspiration with where you are now. It can sometimes be harder, I think, in the business world to really understand where you are and how you're doing and to get that feedback in the moment. Um, But that mixture between belief, expecting that you can get there, but understanding the hard work that has to go into it, I think is really important. One last thing I wanted to ask you, and, and that is, if there was one thing that you'd want people to take away from the book, what is it? That it is a marathon, not a sprint. Our working lives are a marathon, not a sprint. And therefore to operate accordingly. You can't go sort of hell for leather. Um, You will burn out. So understand that both for you as leader, but also for those you lead, it is a marathon, not a sprint. And think carefully about the aspects which really can drive that long-term performance. Hopefully the chapters in the book will enable you to do so. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find bonus content from the podcast, as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.